Okay. Are you ready to roll, man? Let's do it. Okay. Welcome to the Dr. Bud Gill podcast. I mean, this is one I've really been looking forward to. I have a legend, uh, a legend in front of me right now, uh, Sam Bakhtiar, or, you know, Dr. Sam Bakhtiar, I should say, who I'm sure most of my followers do follow you on social media and are aware of you. Um, but for those who don't, you're a major player in the fitness world. Uh, you're, you're a tremendous entrepreneur. Uh, you've started an incredible franchise, the Camp Transformation Center, which has over 110 locations, I believe, at this point. Um, but more, more impressive than all that, you're also a doctor. You're a chiropractic doctor, although you've never practiced, which I came to learn, which I, which I love. Um, but you, you, know, you made your Persian mother proud, just like you know, my Indian mom kind of forced me into a field of medicine as well. And, uh, you know, but more, more impressive than all of that is just like, I, I really just love your story, man. And I think it's a story that is so incredibly inspiring. And I think it really, my, a big theme in what I do is that, you know, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And it takes a shitload of hustle and grind and, a, you know, a tremendous amount of resilience and perseverance and dedication and, and, you know, burning that midnight oil, but it can be done. And your story is a true testament to that, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm just super psyched to have you here, man. So thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy morning. I know your schedule is packed for us, for spending a little time with us this morning, my man. Well, it's a pleasure and honor to be on your show, Doc. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so, um, you know, um, I'm just going to give like a sort of Cliff Notes version of what I've garnered fr from your life, just to kind of give my, my listeners and viewers a little bit of background about who you are. Um, and then, you know, we're going to dive into that and kind of break it down a little bit and get into some of the nitty gritty. So... From what I, you know, from what I know, and you just correct me if I'm wrong on any of these points, you know, you were born in Tehran, Iran during a very, very rough period. You know, it's basically a war zone. And, uh, you know, it's you, your mom, your dad. I think you're an only child. Is that yes, right? Correct. Yeah. And, um, your dad was a deadbeat kind of, you know, he ditched you guys at the when you were at the age of three. And I, as far as I know, you've never heard from him since. Yeah, no, never. Yeah, interesting. My mom and dad got divorced when I was a year old. And I've never had any, a word of contact with my dad since then also. So that, that was something that really resonated with me when I heard that. And then, you know, you were able, like a lot of, I have a lot of friends who are Persian and, you know, their family was able to escape and, you know, you kind of escaped via France into like bumblefuck Pennsylvania into a town called Sharon, which is, I've never even heard of it. My, my brother lives in Philly. I don't know how close that is to Philly, but it, it it's, the opposite side. It's, it's totally opposite. Philly is an Eastern and, and Sharon is on Western. Gotcha. All right. So you're basically in the Midwest, I would say. And as a Persian guy, I don't think there were any other Persians that were that were in Sharon, Connecticut. Just like when I moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, I was the only Indian kid in my elementary school. So I just can only imagine the degree of bullying and you know racism and you know just sort of cultural unawareness that you were exposed to. And, and that in and of itself is really traumatizing. You know, it's like you know you're not you don't fit in with any particular setting. You know, like like you, it sounds like you know you, you had like the worst clothes and the worst sneakers. You know, I had that growing up, and then you get picked on for shit like that when you're a kid. You know, all of those little, you know, all of those little um, sort of micro traumas as a kid. And we're going to get into this because I know you mentioned this is like, you know, that, that whole Tim Grover diving into your dark side. Uh, you know, that 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 is a big part of, I think, what feeds guys like guys like you and I to like really kind of have, I guess you would say a chip on your shoulder. Uh, but we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, so from there, you know, as a, you know, your, your Persian mother. To make her proud, she just said, listen, you know, you got, you got basically three choices of what you could do in this world. You know, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be an engineer. So, you know, pick the three that you want. And, you know, some, during high school, which I really want to get into some of this, you really uh, had a passion for fitness. And, you know, using that, you studied at, at Penn State. Uh, I believe it was Penn State. You studied, uh, you know, fitness and nutrition, you know, and, you know, really things that you were interested in. 
And then from there, you pursued uh, a doctorate in chiropractic. Uh, you have a chiropractic degree, a, do a doctorate in chiropractic from L.A. Somehow you ended up in L.A. where all the other Persians are. And then, uh, you know, you never practiced a day, you know, but you made your mom proud. She was very proud that you were, you know, you became a doctor. And she could tell all her friends that, you know, my son's a doctor. And you never practiced. You actually went straight into fitness. And, you know, you developed a, from what I understand, a gym within a gym, you know, a kind of a private uh, training gym within like, I think it was an LA fitness or something like right. that. And, um, it became very successful. And, you know, for the first time in your life, you tasted having a few dollars in your pocket and, you know, you, you, you know, you enjoyed that a bit. And, you know, that's, I had a similar period in my own life that, that, that resonated with. And then, uh, 2008 happened and, you know, what was once a booming fitness industry, people were paying for trainers, you know, all that money dried up especially in Southern California, where there was a lot of people were really hit by the mortgage crisis and, you know, what was going on in the world. And, you know, your business basically went from over $2 million in revenue to under half a million dollars in revenue, but you were living in a two and a half million dollar lifestyle. So with that came the pressures. You had a child on the way. You were newly married. Um, that put a strain on the marriage, obviously. Then you went to like a sort of like the bottom, you know, and you were kind of trying to figure things out and, you know, really starting from scratch kind of broke, you know, really, I think, you know, and you used your last $11,000 to join a partner and start what you have now. And, and what's amazing to me is that over the course of, so that was like 2010, 2011, I guess. So we're, in, we're, we're, you know, in 2020. So in the course of those nine or 10 years, you actually surpassed what you had, like you were probably trying to recoup what you had before the recession and you've like surpassed that 50 fold in a very short period, basically. Um, and then there's so many lessons in all of this stuff that I just said, I don't mean to be taking up all the podcasts with talking here, but I just want to kind of lay a framework for the things that we're going to dive into because, you know, I had Bedros on my podcast. So, uh, a couple of podcasts ago, and he has this line that I love is, you know, the difference between being poor and being broke. And, you know, you grew up poor and, you know, poor is a mindset, you know, but you turned that lifestyle of scarcity into a mindset of abundance. You know, and a lot of that, I think, was through your fitness transformation and just with things that you've endured. So even though you were broken, even though you were broke in 2010, you weren't poor. Your mindset had shifted and you were able to go from that low point, probably the lowest point that you've been in since you were a kid. Uh, with all the pressures of being a parent and you're divorced and you were able to 50 X that 50 X, what you did before that downturn. And, um, you know, I just think that's an amazing story, man. And I think, you know, I'm so excited to get into little bits and pieces of all of this, man. So, um, I, you know, I just want to kind of start back, let's start back from the beginning, you know, and you know, talk to me a little bit about, I know you've talked about this in other podcasts, but maybe, you know, just briefly talk to me about what it was like when you were a kid, when you first came to the States and, uh, you know, just, you know, maybe just break it down a little bit for my viewers who aren't familiar with your story. Yeah, well, you know, back then they didn't have Google or Yahoo or any search engines. So when my mom said, hey, we're going to go to the United States, you know, well, I was like, well, that's where Michael Jackson is from. You know, that's where all the celebrities are from. And I'm like, I remember watching American TV shows. And, you know, there was American TV shows like Dallas Dynasty, 18. And everybody had mansions and swimming pools and Bentleys and Cadillacs and so I thought I was coming to a country where everybody was a multimillionaire and, and everybody just lived an amazing life. And like, like you said earlier, you know, I went to a, I came to a little town called Sharon, Pennsylvania. 
which is an old steel mill town that all the steel mills left, all the abandoned buildings now, you know, uh, and it's 1985 in the middle of crack cocaine epidemic. And my uncle did what, what most Middle Easterns do when they come to America. You know, he opened up a convenience store in the worst neighborhood. So my first impression of America was, wait a second, where is the multi-million dollar mansions? There's only, I only see abandoned buildings and, and abandoned homes. You know, where are, you know, the Bentleys? I don't see anything like that here. And outside of my uncle's store, you know, I literally just saw like pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers, you know. And uh, so I went to go to enroll in seventh grade. I didn't speak English. You know, we went to, to go enroll in seventh grade. And literally, when I walked in, I stuck out like a sore thumb. Like everybody looked at me like, what the hell is that? I wasn't black. I wasn't white. You know, my, my clothes were different. My shoes were different. My haircut was different. And I didn't speak the same language. So it was, a, it, was, it was a shock, especially when you consider you're coming out of pre-teenage year, you're, when you're very vulnerable and you really care about other people's opinion and you really want to get upset, you know, accepted. And that was my first impression of America. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to know that those are like the worst years, I think, especially for, I mean, for all kids, like 12, 13, you know, everyone's trying to coming into their own, trying to figure it out. And for me, those are the worst years of my life, man. I was a mess. I used to get in fights all the time at school. I get suspended from school. You know, I just, I didn't fit in. I wore glasses. I was like, again, I used to wear like seven-year-old hand-me-downs. My brother's seven years older than me. And you just get traumatized. And it's traumatizing, actually. You know, it is like, you know, it's, it's you know, when you look back and obviously we've all recovered from it and, you know, gone on to do things, do, you know, we, we got over it. But it is like, you know, it really does affect you in a real way. And uh, I can only imagine like what I went through because I was born here. It's compounded by a thousand when you're foreign. You know, what, so, what, what, how old are you, man? I'm 47. Okay, cool. So you were born in 1973. Yeah. Cool. I was born in 75. So, yeah, we're very so sort of very similar time frames in terms of when we were in school and stuff. And I know part of this was so, you know, you basically were trying to fit in. You tried to they didn't have soccer. I guess that you're in your town and soccer. Oh, they, they, they're like, what soccer? Uh, you know, they didn't have that. They have football. They went like this. I'm like, well, that's weird, man. I mean, that's American football. You know, they're like, yeah, we have American football. So I was devastated because soccer was my life. But that was like the only sport that you, that was huge. You know, it's coming from, you know, the, the Middle East and, you know, then the little tiny spent in Europe. That's the main sport. Yes. You tried out for basketball and you didn't make the cut. I didn't make the cut, man. 23 people you know, signed up to, to go to the basketball team. 22 people made it. I was the only one that didn't make it. And I was devastated. I was so devastated. I was like, you know, if it was already bad enough, the kids were making fun of me and I was getting bullied. And now they were making fun of me even more. You know, they told me that, yeah, hey, you're a foreigner. You don't belong in this country. That you're not going to any sport. You have no athletic ability. You know, and, you know, there were just, you know, a lot of, a lot of mean things that were said. And, but again, you know, that is everything that's happened to me happened for me. Right. And I remember I, wa I walked home in, in the snow, told my mom, mom, I want to, I want to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. You know, you know, this country is not for me. I'm going to go back to my old country. And my mom sat me in my bed while I was crying and told me three things that changed for my life. You know, she said, Sam, first of all, we can't go back because we came here as refugees. We escaped the country. And that was a concept we know as a, right now is burning the boats. You know, don't give yourself an option to fail. Number two, she said, Sam, do you really want to play sports? I said, yes. 
She said, well, Sam, you can do whatever you want and be whoever you want as long as we're willing to put in the work. And then third, she said, okay, now let's figure out a way we can put in the work. Let's come up with the schedule. And she goes, okay, after school, you get out of school at 2.15. At 2.30, you're going to go to the boys' club, practice basketball till 5 for two and a half hours. You know, I come pick you up after work. We'll go home. We'll do homework. We'll eat. And we'll rinse and repeat. And that's how I know now that, you know, now to this day, I don't give myself an option to fail. I don't give myself an option. If I want something, I go all in. Number, you know, number two, I know that if I want something, anything is possible as long as I'm willing to pay the price. And three, planning, something to do to this day. Something that I do to this day is I plan every single day exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that has become the cornerstone of my life and my success. Talk to me. Uh, it, it's funny because that's, that's sort of the same concept of any high achiever. You know, it's being hyper-schedulized. Uh, you know, every minute of the day is accounted for. Getting your daily win that gets you to your major goal and never – never failing to get that daily win no matter you know for me it's just, I, I, and i will get into this a little bit more but i love fitness as a paradigm for life because because a physique and fitness is is not something you can buy you know that's only something that you can earn by hard work and it's chipping away every day day after day week after week month after month year after year it could take years to see results it took me years to start to see results but you have to believe in getting that daily win no matter what no matter how shitty you feel if you're sick your back hurts your leg hurts it doesn't matter you're getting it done otherwise you fail the day you know, and that's kind of, you know, you have that every, everyone, everyone who's on this podcast basically, basically has that mindset, which I love. And again, that's what I always say. Anyone can do it, but very few are willing to put in the work to do it. But talk to me a little bit about your mom. Um, you know, so what, what, what was she doing? What was her job? What was she doing when she came here? When she first came here, she was helping my uncle at, at, at the convenience store. And then later on, you know, my uncle's convenience store had like a little, you know, garage attached to it. And she said, hey, why don't I start a little boutique, a little ladies clothing store? So she would go, you know, and buy a few clothes, you know, perfumes and accessories. And then she would sell them. And that, was, that became her business. And then she grew that over the years to a huge bridal boutique. She moved to actually a better location. And she was a quite an entrepreneur herself. I saw her hard work. I saw how hard she hustled. Matter of fact, she drove to New York and was, was buying, you know, bridal, bridal clothes and, you know, bridal dresses and accessories from New York or bring it back to Sharon and sell it, you know. And I saw, you know, how hard she worked. Literally drove there by herself. She's five foot, 4'11", maybe, you know, 100 pounds. And uh, she, hustled, she hustled so hard. So I learned to hustle. You know, and and the hard work of a mom. So, did she end up developing like a success for herself, like kind of the American dream? Oh, absolutely, dream? absolutely. You know, she she owns now several buildings. You know, and she has she has several commercial buildings. She owns several homes, and uh, over the years, she's became quite successful in her own in her own right as a single mother. That's amazing. Did you have to take loans and stuff for school, or was she pretty like flush by that time? She paid most of it. You know, but I also take some loans as well. Yeah, that's amazing to me. You know, so my mom is very much, it's a very similar story. And I'm not going to get into all the details of it. You can hear it. Like, I have a podcast with my mom, which you should check out because I think our moms are very similar. I love that. But it's, uh, first of all, women are incredible. You know, the, the strength of a woman is, you know, I don't think a guy could, could do that what our moms did, you know. Especially at that time when it was kind of taboo being a single parent. Mm -hmm. 
you know, my mom never got remarried. I'm not sure if, you know, like my mom never, she was always alone, just dedicated her life to her sons. And the only thing she always told us, you need to stand on your own two feet. You need to stand on your own two feet. That's all she cared about, you know. And medicine for her was the way that she was able to stand on her two feet and, you know, provide for the family. So that was the only option given to my brother and I, who's also a doctor. Um, but it sounds like, you know, first of all, the American dream is a real thing. So anyone who doesn't think it's, it's a real thing then, it's a real thing now. And no one comes to this country to work harder than immigrants. And immigrants want to build something better for themselves and for their family. And without them, this country is going down the tubes. So it's, you know, it really is, you know, because your mom provides jobs. She owns buildings. You know, she's an entrepreneur. She pays taxes. You know, all of these things that are really stimulating the economy. Your immigrant mother did, and now you're doing the same thing. The next generation is an entrepreneur. And, you know, that in and of itself is its own amazing story. Um, but the fact that within just maybe five or six years, your mom was able to basically support you guys, pay for most of college and, you know, all that sort of stuff is, is incredible. And, you know, your mom obviously had that mindset where there's a problem. We have a problem and we have to put in a plan to solve it. You know, so for you, you're going to go work out after school. You're going to do your homework, eat that. And then you're going to go back and work out and do whatever it takes. So I know you kind of veered at that point from basketball into fitness. You know, I, you, know you started, I think you, you started you know, basically weight training at that point and started to get really into bodybuilding. And, you know, you basically did, dedicated yourself to becoming a bodybuilder before you, know, before you had the physique to show for it. And you committed to that lifestyle. So you could t tell me a little bit about that, man. Well, you know, you know, I went to the boys club to get better at basketball so I can practice next year. And um, I saw these guys coming from this, this room, and uh, these guys were jacked. You know, and at that time, I remember Arnold movies and the Rocky movies, and I was like, man, I want to look like them. So I started going up there. I was this little scrawny, awkward-looking kid with big belly. And when I walked in this room, there was a bunch of, like, blue-collar, you know, still workers, you know, with overalls and still boots, and they were just lifting insane weights. I was looking at them like, how can you be that strong? And to my surprise, I thought they would be like mean to me because they were these strong big guys. You know, because in school, everybody was mean to me. But to my surprise, they were so nice. And they were like, wow, look at this little kid, you know, coming to the gym. You know, let, let, us, show, let us take him under, his, under the wing, show him how to lift properly, show him how to eat properly. And that became my, you know, they became my friends. They became like my father figures, if you will. And so every day after school, I would go with a bunch of big guys. I was the scrawniest guy in the gym. And I would just work out and I would work out and I would work out and I would work out. I would just take in what these guys were doing. And that was, that was, that taught me so much. Because not only I transformed physically, but I transformed mentally. I transformed emotionally. And I started developing better self-esteem and better self-worth. I could say those guys were like your first mentors. For sure. For sure. They were my first mentors. You know, I think that, that's, that's so powerful. And um, first of all, mentor, especially when you don't have a dad, like, you know, mentors like that are really, really important. You know, I've had a few of them growing up as well. You know, older male figures that I looked up to because I didn't have that at home. And, you know, there, there's something to be said for that. Like, it is, it is an important part of growing up. And it's something that as a parent now that I really see it's, it's crazy. Like being a dad without having a dad, you know, like it's kind of a wild, it's a, it's a trip and you, you know, you kind of want to be the best dad ever just cause you know, that's something that you missed in your own life. Um, but two things there, the, the mentorship 
is I think is I think key. But I think that the second part of it is the transformation you make physically. It's really one of the most powerful transformations you can make because it, it takes a lot of work to make a transformation. There's so many parts of it that need to be aligned. So it's not only like the workouts that you're doing at the gym. You know, nutrition is a huge part of it, probably the biggest part of it. Um, and also the discipline that's involved, you know, uh, getting your daily win, all that sort of stuff that we just discussed. But it really, it gives you, this is the transformation that you get the most from a fitness transformation because I think it's just so incredibly empowering with fitness is like when you make a physical transformation and all the mental toughness that's, that's, that it takes to get that physical transformation. But moreover, and I know this is something that you can speak to because you're a competitive bodybuilder. When you get to a goal, and this is the mindset, it's not, it's not that you arrive. So it's not like you're, hey, I'm going to get fit, and now I arrived. Okay, cool. Now I'm going to eat like shit and stop working out. It's no, you set a bigger and better goal for yourself. It's all about pushing yourself to the maximum. It's like that David Goggins, you know, squeezing all of the potential out of your system. And once you realize that you've kind of broken a physical barrier, also a mental barrier, it's like, oh, shit, you know, what else can I do? Like, what else am I capable of, you know? So I know, like, even, like, during college and, you know, uh, chiropractic school, you were that's when you were competitively bodybuilding, right? Like, you know, while you were shouldering the burden of academics. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit about all of those things, if you don't mind, just like about mindset, about hitting a goal, pushing yourself to a bigger goal, about being a competitive bodybuilder and how that strengthened your mindset. I mean, look, I think in life, it's all about progression. You know, no matter what goal you have, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's your physique, you know, when you achieve that goal, you, can, you don't sit down and be like, okay, well, that's it. You want to see what else you can do. You know, we as humans, we're at the top of the, top of the food chain because we have the ability to evaluate, self-assess, and say what we want to do next. Nobody else can do that. No, no other species that we know of is evolving as fast as we have evolved. You know, so um, in college, I, I was the guy who had my gym clothes with me, my book bag with me, and my food with me. People, they used to make fun of me in class because I would literally have three bags with me, three huge bags I was walking around the campus with because I was disciplined enough. I was able to juggle school, work, you know, meal prep, and bodybuilding. And you can handle a lot more than you think you can handle. And most people just want comfort. Oh, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much. Well, you don't know until you just put it to the test. It's too much because you're uncomfortable. But remember, nothing happens in a comfort zone. Nothing happens in a comfort zone. You gotta be willing to get uncomfortable if you wanna progress. I'm a firm believer in that. You know, and, and, and pushing your physique, you know, uh, and talking about just the physique part right now, also helps you build disciplined muscles for all aspects of your life, in your business, in your personal relationship, and everything else you do. So true, man. I mean, so true. I, I think that's probably the most powerful thing is the discipline that you get. You know, that, those discipline reps that you get. It's not the reps with the plates on the, on, on the barbell. It's the discipline reps. Um, so talk to me a little bit about competitive bodybuilding. You know, like, you know, what was that like, you know, like just talk about bulking and cutting and, you know, I, I imagine you probably did some, you know, uh, extra, extra supplements like all the other bodybuilders. Of course, of course. Um, you know, I, I know it's an extreme lifestyle. I mean, I love bodybuilding lifestyle because I think it's just 
is so extreme. Like the gym by us is, I work at home, but the Bev's gym is like the big bodybuilding gym. Oh, yeah, gym, yeah. Um, but I, I just think the bodybuilding lifestyle is so extreme. I mean, these guys are literally pushing them. They're like the one, they're one percenters, you know, and like in all aspects of their life. And I think, you know, I think bodybuilding, the sport is very unhealthy, you know, because you have to take a bunch of drugs to be able to compete at the highest level. And I, and I experimented with that when I was competing, you know, at the highest level, but I think bodybuilding lifestyle, I, I think you might cut out. Oh, sorry, man. You actually, you yeah, you're right. You have to be on juice. If you're gonna be a bodybuilder. I mean, yeah. Right? I mean, if if you want to co compete at the highest level, yes. You know, you, you know, but but I mean, I mean, there are so so and so called natural bodybuilding. I don't believe in that. You know, but you know, if you if you're competing, you know, everybody's pretty much taking juice. You know what I mean? And I think that that's not the right way of doing things. You know, especially. If you want to, you know, I, I was talking about that in another podcast, and if you want to make a career out of it, it's not a good way to kind of kill yourself to try to make a little bit of money. And it is a very little money. It's not like, you know, you're, okay, you're going to get a $25 million contract. You know, you, may, you might make it at the highest level. You might make a couple hundred thousand dollars if you're number one in the world. You know what I mean? But it's really not anything to, um, anything to be like, oh, my God, this, this, is, this is amazing, right? Um, but a bodybuilding lifestyle, you know, eating healthy, training every day and, and, and having a discipline to rinse and repeat is the best thing you can do, you know? And so I'll, I'll give you, you know, so, so as far as I'm bodybuilding this, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. So I remember when I first got into bodybuilding, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was literally kind of still going starving myself to get cut. And I would, I would come in, I would be very, very cut, but I would lose a lot of muscle, you know, in, in, in the beginning. And I would go in there and like win my weight class, but I would never win the overall, you know. And then one day I had a guy, a professional bodybuilder by the name of Patrick Lynn, come up to me in the gym and go, Sam, you got what it takes. You just don't know what you're doing. You don't know how you, you over diet. Let me help you with your diet on the next show. I can help you win the overall title because you have, you have the lines and symmetry and everything. And I said, well, how much is it going to cost me? And he goes, well, it's going to cost you 500 bucks. And I said, wait a second. My car doesn't cost that much. I have a beat up 92 Honda Civic, you know? And he goes, well, that's how much it's going to cost. Do you want to win or not? And I really wanted to win the overall title. I was tired of just winning my class. So I literally borrowed from my student loans borrow money from my student loans and pay Patrick 500 bucks. So that I become my first paid mentor. You know what I mean? And Patrick had me do some unconventional stuff that now we know as carb cycling. Back then I didn't know what it was. Yeah. You know, so I didn't know what it was. Next thing you know, he had me on zero carbs for five days and two days he had me eat like 400 grams of carbs and zero carbs and 400 grams of carbs. And you know, you know, all this crazy stuff. I was like, what is he doing? You know? The night before the show, Mr. Orange County, he told me to go eat six double Whoppers, large fries, and a regular Coke. Now, remember, I've been eating nothing but chicken and broccoli for like weeks. So I was eating these Whoppers in, in bed, you know, and I was so tired of eating. I couldn't eat no more. My stomach was out to here, you know, um, you know, my muscles were this big. And now I'm panicking the night before the show. I call him up, I'm like, Patrick, I look like crap. I should have never ate this. And what are you doing to me? I think you messed me up. 
He goes, I'll see you in the morning. He hung up on me. Next morning, I go to the bathroom. I look in the mirror. I couldn't recognize myself. I looked like an incredible Hulk. I had veins, I was vascularity, I was shredded. And he comes in and rings the doorbell in my apartment. And I literally like wanted to kiss him. I was so happy. So I went to the bodybuilding show. And as soon as I walked in, everybody was like, well, how do you think you're gonna do? I go, I'm gonna win the whole show. And they're like, what do you mean you're gonna win the whole show? That's, that's a pretty positive thinking. I go, it's not positive thinking. I go, today, nobody's gonna beat me. I don't care who, I don't care if you're Ronnie Coleman. It's not gonna beat me today. And I got on stage and I swept the whole show. Wow. And the reason I'm telling you that story is because of the power of mentorship. Yeah. You know, don't be afraid to pay for somebody who's already been there, done that, a professional, somebody who's, who's doing what you wanna do. You know, at that time, $500 was a lot of money for me. At that $500, he taught me what to do. And then I took his method, applied it, and became the first bodybuilder in history to have a first place title in every single weight class because I was willing to part away with $500 to be able to get the knowledge that I wanted to do. And that's so important for so many people. You know, you're only one piece of information away for you or one connection away for you to make your next fortune. It's so true. The caveat to that is there's some bad mentors out there. <laughs> you gotta be oh, no, no, absolutely. But you want to you really research the mentor and see who, who you're hiring. You know, you know, have they done what you want them to do? You know, have, you know, have, have they done, you know, you know, research? You know, for example, Patrick, he had, a, he, he had an ISBB pro card. So I already knew he was a professional. You know, I, I saw him place top three in Ar Ar Arnold Classic. So I knew he was doing that. So there's so many mentors out there right now. Just research them. Make sure they're, they're a real deal. They, they'll, if they're telling you something, they've already been there, done that. If they're done it, then by all means. Yeah, I, I think that's very powerful. And that's something I actually have, you know, I've had mentors kind of all throughout, just, you know, going through med school and all that sort of stuff. But, and like, you know, reaching out to folks who did things that I wanted to do. But even at this stage, it's like even more important to have mentors, you know, because like my yeah. goals are bigger now than they were before. And I mean, like uncharted waters and doing things that I, you know, I don't know about. I'm just kind of, doing it but mentorship has been so critically important you know like uh i mean it's it's i, I really i really believe in that man i think that's a really really very very important point that you're bringing up man so at your biggest like you know you did every weight class like what you're you're not a tall guy right no i'm five 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 so like what was your biggest like what five five like you know how much did you weigh I think the biggest i got was like uh, close to 10. wow you know, you know, I mean, that's the biggest. I mean, I literally was trying to get bigger. I couldn't eat that much anymore. You know, like I was like, you know, um, you know, I, I won every single weight class, you know, and at one time I, I competed as a heavyweight, you know, as a joke to see if I can make heavyweight, you know, uh, just, just to place top five, I was going to be happy with. So actually the whole week before the show, I ate nothing but cakes and cookies to try to actually gain weight. And I stepped on heavyweight stage and I won the whole show. And uh, it was crazy. Everybody was like, what are you doing? I'm like eating cookies and trying to, but it was just, uh, it, it was just to see if I can just do it. So when you, so when you finish your chiropractic, so this is all while you were a student, right? Like while you're getting your doctorate, all the stuff was going on? Um, that? It, it was, some of it was when I, when I was a student and some of it was after, when, when I started my business, while I was actually starting my business and building my business. Okay. So let, let's, let's get into that phase of your life a little bit. So when you graduated chiropractic school, the 20 grand, to your name you needed 40 grand to start your business your mom was obviously a successful entrepreneur so you told her the deal and said i'm a doctor i did what you wanted me to do now i'm going to pursue my dream give me 20 grand 
fit right so i need 20 grand to do it and she gave me 20 grand um and then i guess you started a gym within a gym at la fitness i mean that was probably like the early stages of real personal training where like regular folks it was like normal for them to get a personal trainer where yeah, everybody back then had a personal trainer yeah and which was kind of like a thing that started in like the late 80s 90s really really when the dot com stuff started happening like in the 90s i'd say that was like really really big so i guess did la fitness not have a personal training program or how well, did that back then, back then la fitness hired a company because but what what la fitness didn't want to do is get into personal training program and what la fitness didn't want to do is deal with 20 different trainers and connect uh, collect rent so they hired one company and they said okay you pay us a, a big rent and you take care of the trainers and so the training and that's what i did yes so you were like a franchisee of a larger company um no no i, I would that was my own company that was your company okay my company i started i started my own company inside of la fitness in chino hills so you told them, I'm going to take care of this for you guys. You presented it to them. Or were you already working out there, kind of knew them, and said, hey, I'm the guy. So, so I, I worked for a company who had about 10 or 12 locations inside of LA Fitness who was doing their personal training. One day, the company goes out of business, give, gives us like no notice. And I knew the vice president of LA Fitness, and I called him, and I said, Renee, I go, I would love an opportunity for me to Take care of Chino. I can't take care of all of them. I don't have the money to run ten, but I can. I can commit to one. Plus, I know everybody there. I can smooth everything out. And uh, he talked to the owners, Lewis and Chin, and he gave me an opportunity, and I ran with it. Wow. So, were you a personal trainer at that point for that other company? You were working as a trainer. I was. Yes, I was. I was a personal trainer, and I was also their district manager. Okay. All right. So you had your feet wet. I guess were you doing some of that while you were a student, also? Like doing oh yeah, training? I worked. All, yeah, I worked. I was a student. I always worked when I was going to school. I was always worked. I was competing. I was training. I was meal prepping. You know, I, I, I literally had no time. Right. Okay. So you already have, you know, I mean, you, you've been hustling since day one. So, yeah. you, so you started this, this and you killed it. Like you were killing it. Um, you, how many trainers did you have working for you? You know, in the beginning, it was like four of us that I grew up to almost 20 trainers. All in the Chino Hills? Yes. Uh, Wow. So you bet. So and I mean, at its peak, you're generating 2.4 million in revenue. Not inside of LA Fitness. So I, I was in LA Fitness from 2000 to 2004. In fact, a lot of my uh, a lot of my clients complained about LA Fitness cleanliness, uh, the gym equipment weren't being serviced, and a lot of people who were kind of like more overweight they didn't want to go to a meat market. Mm-hmm. At that time, I'm like, wait a second. I'm paying LA Fitness seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a month for rent. I wonder what it would be if I get my own facility, how much would it cost me? So I went to look at, look at some uh, locations and look at some equipment. And I'm like, wait a second, I can furnish this place and have a nice, my, my private gym for about $9,000 a month. And I would save literally $8,000 a month, $8,500 a month. You know, and um, so I started doing that. But then I, I realized, wait a second, now I actually have to start marketing. Because LA Fitness, I don't have the foot traffic that LA Fitness does. So that's when I started getting mentors and, and getting help and all that kind of stuff for, you know, for marketing. So who, I, started, I started marketing it. Who'd you reach out to to help you? Bedros. Bedros was one of my, one of my first, uh, first marketing coaches. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what was their advice at that time? Like, like around that time, I guess there was Google ads and all that sort of stuff and like the, around that time, yeah? 
Yeah, it, that, it, was, it was Google ads, but most of the time, you know, what I, what I did was, you know, I started advertising in local magazines. I started positioning myself, um, local magazine, local newspapers. I started sending out postcards. You know, I started learning lead generation, you know, and, um, you know, I started, I started killing it. I started, I started doing really, really well. Um, and in 2007, right before the recession, I did 2.4 million out of a, out of a 4,000 square foot facility. Amazing, man. Did you talk to me about lead generation a little bit? What do you mean by that exactly? Like for what lead, generation, lead generation is for you putting, putting out an ad and exchanging something of value for, for a person's name, phone number and email address. Right. So download this handbook and give me your email address. Yes. So then, so then I can market to them all day long. So this way, it's a two-step process. Not, okay, hey, you want training? Call me. You know, that's not a lead generation because you're not generating leads. But when you, you know, you're getting somebody's name, phone number, email address, so you can contact them, you know, over time, that's a lead. That's a lead generation. Were you managing all of this on your own or did you outsource that? No, I was doing it on my own. I was, at first, I was doing it on my own. Wow. So you were basically sending out emails in your downtime. And yeah, I was doing everything. I was doing everything. And then one thing I also learned later on is, you know, I, you know, to get away from that and learn what's the highest and the best use of my time. And, you know, I, I, I read a book called E-Myth Revisited. Love it, man. That's, what, that's the first book. I, I'm going to tell you a story after you're done. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it, you know, learn how to work on my business and not in my business. It's funny that you said that. So, when I was kind of going through this personal transformation myself about three years ago, um, I asked one of my friends who's a very successful entrepreneur. I said, uh, man, I need a couple of books, man. You gotta give me some books to put my head in the right space. You know, he's like, all right. He, I was like, give me five books. So he gave me E-Myth Revisited, Michael Gerber, amazing book. And I actually, every book I read, and I'm sure you do the same thing. I take one thing out of it. And that's like the one, what's the one most important lesson? So that book to me, the most important lesson was systemizing your life and systemizing your business, right? So. I, I created systems. I literally can't, we're, we're in Miami with my family. I was reading the book. I came back. I literally came back that night and made all these Google sheets for each position in my office with like a 20 point checklist for the day, like the things that need to get done, you know? And uh, that, that was, that was a great book, man. Uh, four hour work week. I'm sure you read that. That, that was, that was another one. Tim Ferriss, Gary V's crushing it, which uh, was amazing, which I really inspires like all the social media stuff that I do. The one thing was, uh, yeah. And then 10X Roll, Grant Cordon was, was, was the last one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. So, so tell me more. So you read that book and you, know, you kind of you systematize. Is that around that time that you read that book? Yes, it was, it was around 2005 when I read that book. I started developing systems. I started working on the business, not so much in the business. You know, and um, and I, started, you know, I started developing a real business, a real plan. And in 2005 is also when I stopped bodybuilding. You know, I, you know, I, you know, I retired from bodybuilding. I said, like, I don't want to, you know, go on, you know, and, and do what I need to do to become a professional because there's no money in it. And I don't want to damage my body. Eventually, my plan is always to have a family. I was, was to get married and have children. So I was like, okay, now it's time for me to really take this business for real. You know what I mean? It's time for me to, you know, so and at that time, I was, I was okay making money and, and, and pursuing my hobby, you know, bodybuilding. And now I'm like, okay, if I'm going to get married, I'm going to, you know, bring children in this world. I need to take this to the next level. And that's why I started getting mentorships and started, you know, learning more about marketing, more about sales systems, you know, and I was doing great till the 2008 recession, as you know, 
and that had to revamp and, and get everything back on track. So, I, so a couple of things I want to talk about, like at this sort of stage in your life. So one is you're making more money than you ever thought you were going to make, right? Um, I imagine. I come from Sharon. So you make two grand a month in Sharon, you're balling. Yeah, so like I mean, at that point, you're probably driving some fancy cars, got some nice watches, got a nice place, you know, like kind of living, like, you know, living the dream, you know, like I had a very sort of similar up deal. Like, you know, I grew up very humble beginnings. I always worked at paper route, delivery pizzas, worked at ice cream shop, you know, tutored, anything I could do to make some money, you know, because I was <laughs> Best job ever, by the way. But my, uh, you know, my mom always gave me everything I needed, but never, I never had money for anything that I wanted, right? So I always had like hustle on the side. And I remember when I was in college, I valet parked cars. So I grew up in the south. I don't know if you're familiar with the New York area, but I grew up on the south shore of Long Island, which is sort of a very blue collar. I grew up in a very blue collar town, regular town. But I used to come to the north shore to work to valet park cars. So you know, these were where all the fancy restaurants are. I mean, I I didn't even believe this was reality. The fancy mansions, the golf clubs. I used to like park like Bentleys and Ferraris and I was like, "Who the hell are these people? Like this is crazy." You know, like I used to valet park cars at country clubs. Like it was a totally alternate reality from when I grew up and I didn't even realize that that was like people actually lived like that. You know, like it was amazing to me. And then fast forward 20 years, you know, like I'm in my 30s now, like my mid 30s, mid to late 30s. I started my practice on Fifth Avenue. I started another practice on Long Island. Um, I like was living. I was living in the neighborhood that I used to work in, eating at the restaurants that I used to park cars at. Belonged to the country club that I used to valley park cars at. Literally, like living a, a like a dream of a life that I never thought was possible. You know, like it's like this is crazy. This is my life, and I couldn't believe it. And that's kind of like I think. I think that's really where you are now, but I imagine at that time, like you were like, wow, holy shit, like life can't get any better than this, right? Like it was amazing. And then to, the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because, like I said, like, you know, you were generating whatever you were generating at that point, and then everything fell apart. We're going to get into that period in a minute. But where you are now, which is literally 12 years later, is 50 times, probably more than 50 times where you were at your highest before that, right? Yeah. So that's where, the, that's what the difference is between being broke and being poor is because you went from, you got broke, um, but you were never, you were never poor. Um, so let's, let's get into that a little bit. So 2008 happened, market crashed. Um, what happens? I mean, to Are you be married honest, at that point? I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, man, I was devastated. You know, we were pregnant with our first child you know, I remember having a meeting with, uh, you know, with the wife back then and uh, we were sitting at a restaurant and I'm like, I go, we're minus $314 in the bank account. And I was staring at her belly and I felt like such a loser because remember, I didn't have a dad to provide for me. And now all of a sudden I became that person, the dad that couldn't provide. But I told her, I'm like, look, I don't care. I'm trying to figure this out. And in life, you have a choice. When you get punched in the face, you can either just retract and go to your corner, sit down and quit, or you can just try to punch back and try to, try to, try to get back up. And after about a week of eating pizza and feeling sorry for myself, I was like, all right, let's get back up and try. And for a period of six years, six years, man, from 2008 to 2014, I got up every single day. And every single day, I was defeated. Every single day I took an L, you know, and, um, and it, it was, it was, 
really devastating at the time because my why was taken away from me. And I, your wife and your child were taken away from you at that point. My, my why is providing for my wife and my child. You know, and then in 2014, when I started seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I started seeing, okay, all the six years of work started to pay off a little bit. I'm starting to get more traction. And then I got hit with another devastating thing, which was uh, which was a divorce. So in life, you're Wait, either hit. You guys didn't get divorced until 2014? Yes. Wow. I didn't realize that. I thought it happened much earlier, like much closer to 2008. No, it's 2014. Wow. So, so what? So, what were you doing between those years? I know because I know your business now. I know. So initially, the business wasn't as profitable, you know, as it is now. But what was going on between 2008? So you, you, you I guess you partnered up with one of your former. I didn't, I didn't partner up till, till 2010. Okay. So 2008, 2009, 2010. You know, I was just trying to experiment with different things. You know, well, how started, you money? like what were you doing? Yeah. So I, was, I started doing small group training. I started doing more challenges, different types of ways to get people in, get people interested, you know, try to figure out different programs that I can get people in because people couldn't afford five, six, eight hundred dollars a month for personal training. So then, um, you know, in 2010, when Ali approached me with the boot camp concept and I said, all right, let's try it. I only had eleven thousand dollars in the bank, you know, and uh, that's my whole life savings, you know, and Ali was like, yeah, I, I just need nine thousand. So I started the camp with her $9,000. You know, I told her I'll market it. She'll teach all the classes. You know, I started marketing it and that starts taking off little by little, little by little, little by little. And, uh, you know, not until 2013, 2014, did we see, we started growing. For about, about, about for a period of, I don't know, from 2010 to 2013, you know, you know, we were growing very, very slowly. We were just getting it started. And then next thing you know, we started exploding. So I can tell you right now, but like, so what, I know one percenter is a thing that, you know, a constant theme in your life. 99% of people would have given up in 2011 or 2012. 99% of people would have been like, this isn't working. I got to go to do something else. What kept you in? Like, did you like, have a deep belief in the concept? You know, I'm a firm believer. I got to know what I do. And fitness has been what I've done all my life. I can also get in real estate because I don't have passion for real estate. You know, I hire people right now to you know, find me deals and, you know, uh, investment properties and things like that. But I don't want to get into real estate. You know, if you look at the books behind me, I'm either, you know, studying business, personal development, or health and health and fitness. I'm still passionate about it like I was 20, 25 years ago. So rather than just jumping ships and trying to figure something, something different out, I'd rather just stay in my own ship and figure it out what, what I'm in right now. See, a lot of people just want to jump ships. So they become jack of all trades and master of none. I know what I'm good at. I just figure out, pivot, and figure out a different way to go, 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 go about what I'm really good at. So you were committed to the concept and like, you know, you're going you're gonna to ride it out. So tell me, like, because, so you got divorced in 2014. That was unexpected? Yeah, that was unexpected. You know, I, I, I didn't want a divorce. I didn't, you know, remember, I didn't have a dad, so I wasn't going to leave. Yeah. You know, but when I, when I got slapped with it, I'm like, wow. I, I know we weren't getting along, but it wasn't like anything, anything like infidelity or anything like, uh, you know, physical abuse or 
anything like that. We're just not getting along. And I wasn't the one who's going to pull the trigger. I'm glad she did, you know. Um, and um, I, like I said, at the time, I was devastated. At the time, I was like, man, this is crazy. I moved out to a hotel for a few months, wow. you know, thinking something's going to get better. I showed up to work like nothing happened, you know, just, you know, trying to put a, trying to put my face on. And, um, and later on, man, I mean, uh, became the best thing that ever happened to me as well. Are you married now? Yes, I am. You are. So you have a daughter from your first marriage. Two daughters from the first marriage and I have a brand new son now. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Oh, that's so, I mean, so, I mean, dude, you're like a crazy baller, man. Like, you know, you got like these Ferraris and Lambos and, you know, G-Wagons. You live in like a crazy house. When did like the, when did it turn? Like, when was it like, holy shit, like this is like, you know, I'm like crushing it right now. I would say, you know, in, in 2014, I started seeing some traction, 2015, 2016, and all that kind of stuff. I want to sit down here and tell you that none of that stuff matters. You know, I'm, I'm in a whole different, I'm in a whole different, you know, uh, place in my life right now. Matter of fact, I just sold the Ferrari and I'm about to sell a few other cars because I'm at this point, I'm in, I'm not into material things. I'm into mindset. I'm into uh, peace of mind and I'm into uh, making generational wealth. You know, that's, that's, that's what I'm into right now. You know, it's funny you say that because you know, like I said, growing up poor, I thought it was a Ferrari and a Lambo and a G-Wagon and all that kind of stuff. And now I'm like, gosh, man, it's, it, even when I had all those cars, you know, I still have all of them except the Ferrari. I, only, I drove my Infiniti SUV, you know, because I can put the dog in there and, you know, I can throw my dog in there, throw my soccer stuff in there and jump in there and just, I don't have to worry about scratching it or, you know, driving it over, over like a curve or anything like that. I'm... As I became older, like, and wiser, I really understand what really matters in life. And if, if I, li I like to now live minimalistic, I really do. Man, I love everything you just said right there. So I, I wanna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share something with you as well. Um, have you read David Meltzer's Connected to Goodness? Have you read that book? I haven't read it yet, no. So there's, so, when you kind of so when you kind of grew up like we grew up, um, I always loved cars. I was always fascinated with cars. You know, I always was like obsessed with them. I you know I just thought they were the most amazing things. And I remember like kind of like before there's like before uh, when I was 42 and this after I was 42. So up until that point, like in my 30s, I started making some real coin, and I was like, holy shit! Like I can buy a Bentley. And I bought a Bentley. I could buy a Ferrari. I could buy a Range Rover. I could buy a Mercedes. I, you know, so I just flee to cars. And I was like, holy. And I remember when I was driving. This was the summer of 2017. I was driving to my country club to play golf. And I was driving my Ferrari to my country club. And thinking, I had a bunch of people working for me. I had my two offices. You know, things were happening. I was still working hard when I worked. But I had a lot of time. I was playing a lot of golf and stuff. I was 42 years old. And I was thinking, like, holy shit. I can't believe this is my life. Like, I can't believe, like, this is what I'm living. Like, you know, and I did that for, like, two, three weeks. And then after a while, I was like, wow, this is really, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And, um, but you almost have to go through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you got to get there. Have it to not, to not care about it. Because I remember my Bentley was literally sitting uh, in, in, the, in a parking spot at my house. And there was, like, a rat's nest. It was, like, a brand new GTC coupe 
fat, blacked out, pimped out Bentley, but I was never driving it. And I took it to get service. And they're like, hey, there's like a rat's nest that's, uh, they're, they're, they're living in your engine. And I was like, you know what? I was like, this is crazy. And I started really thinking about what's important to me and what I want my next 40 years to look like. And it's all about exactly everything you just said. I don't give a fuck about having, I mean, I still have a Ferrari, but I don't, it's not important to me. Like what's important to me is spreading a message of positivity, talking to the eight-year-old me and telling them you can do whatever it is you want to do as long as you're willing to work for it, spreading a message of self-empowerment. I just finished my first book called Let's Get It, which is all about this sort of thing. And it, it's amazing because like everything you just said about like downsizing, creating general, generational wealth, like you know, driving a beater and not caring just because you've already been there and done that. And it's not like you can't still do that. You could. It just provides no value to your yeah. life. Like your life is about so much more than that, you know, and you say like, you know, one of the lines that you say that I love, it's if it's not something that's generating income for you or enabling you to spend more time with your family, it's not worth doing it. 100%, 100%. Hey, man, so I'll just I mean, I guess we'll just close with a few things because I know you got to roll. Um, I love your story, man. I love what you're all about. Um, can you just just talk to me about what the next few years look like for you? So like what's 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 the plan? What's uh, you know, what, what's on your to do list? Honestly, the next few years for, is for me to just spend as much quality time with my children and spend time in developing my children, traveling with them, and just pick and choose what I want to do in business and how I want to spend my time. You know, I'm pretty much retired. You know, I'm pretty much, you know, um, I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to do anything that I don't want to. And, um, and just getting, you know, just getting, getting to, you know, doing more stuff that, like you said, it's going to provide more time for the family and it's going to provide residual income for me. I love it, man. And just last, last thing before you go, man, just talk to me a little bit about your fitness and nutrition right now. What, what, what are you doing? Cause you're obviously still in shape. Well, I, you know, I've been, I've been doing intermittent fasting now, you know, because I, I hear all the health benefits and everything. So, um, I do uh, 20 hours of fasting, four hours of eating. And, um, every day, six days a week, I hit the weights, you know, and six days a week, I do some kind of a cardio whether it's walking, whether it's stairs. And on Sundays, you know, sometimes we just go for a nice little walk around the neighborhood. But every day I do something. What's your split? Like in terms of upper body, lower body, do you do full body? What do you generally do? I do the same split I've done for years, man. You know, I, 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 do, I do chest and shoulders and triceps, back and biceps, legs. I repeat that routine for another three days. Love it. Yeah. Sam, man, I look forward to sharing a workout with you one of these days, man. You're someone who really inspires me. And your story is inspiring. I think you're going to inspire so many people. I'm so, I'm so proud to be able to share. Thank your you, journey. Audience, man. I and, appreciate. Uh, I hope, when the world opens up, man, hopefully we can connect. If I'm your way, or you're my way, man. For sure, for sure. All right, brother. Well, have a good day. Thank you so much, my man. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.